very good friends of mine have recommended this guest. I look forward to this conversation. My guest is a clinical psychologist, author, and world traveler. Let's begin and meet Linda Madison of Omaha, Nebraska. Linda, thanks for coming on with my podcast today. Sure, I'm glad to be here. I understand that you've uh, got a successful independent practice as a psychologist in Omaha, but more interesting, I also understand that you are a writer and uh, an avid traveler. Could you just give us a little background about uh, where you were born and raised and just a thumbnail introduction on your pre-professional years? Um, Sure. I was born in Ohio. Um, in the countryside east of Cleveland, and from there studied to be a special education teacher, um, a home training consultant for preschool disabled children. Um, so I studied in Michigan, and then and then I moved to Atlanta to work for a psychoeducational program there, and got a master's in school psychology, and then went to Emory for a doctorate in developmental clinical psychology husband, who's also a psychologist, and I both moved to uh, Oregon, and I studied in an internship at the University of Oregon Health Sciences Center. And from there, found a job in Nebraska, in Omaha, a professorship in pediatrics at the University Medical Center. Um, And then later, I directed and grew the behavioral health program at Children's Hospital and was there for over two decades. And... uh, then I directed a nonprofit program, and then I went into private psychotherapy practice where I see adults, families, and children. And I'm looking at retirement in the next year or so, definitely to pursue my writing more. And uh, so I've been a writer, I, I'd say, you know, all my life. Even as a child, I was writing poems in third grade and essays and keeping a diary through my childhood. And so. It's pretty eclectic, some of the writing that I've done, but it's always been part of my life. That's an interesting habit to pick up early early on. Is it a habit you develop because of a suggestion by a family member, a parent, or a friend? That's an interesting question. Not initially, not that I'm aware of. I know that I'd make up little lyrical poems and they'd you know, my parents, like all parents do, would say, oh, that's wonderful, do more, you know, so probably in that regard. But I remember just wanting both to, you know, express myself, and also I remember as a little kid cutting out um, articles or pictures out of magazines and putting them together on paper and saying I was making a book about dogs or something, you know. So I think sometimes we keep the... um, habits we had as children, and not that I've done books about dogs, but certainly nonfiction books and things like that that are information for the public. So, Linda, are you using writing in any of your psychotherapy? Um, Yeah, that's an interesting question. I use writing a lot in my clinical practice. To understand clients, a lot of them write, and they say they're not writers, but they've kept some kind of diary or they've written letters and so I invite them to bring that in. Sometimes I, if they want to write, I encourage them to do that and give maybe some prompts. They use it as catharsis. Sometimes I'll type and they'll share a memory so that I can read it back and we can work from there. Um, I, you know, I use it as expression. 
I've used it a lot with parents of children as a way to help with storytelling with kids or sharing maybe appropriate books or something that can offer guidance. Children, sometimes they aren't able to hear it from a parent, you know, to manage who's a good friend or not or how to share feelings. And so sometimes I even give them guidance about making up stories with their own children. So I use it a lot. I also think that, you know, children, adolescents, grown-ups, they all write or read books or listen to music. And I think music is a form of lyrical poetry, maybe not all music in my opinion, but a lot of it is. So I find that I know them best when I know what speaks to them. So I ask about a favorite saying or poem or what do you listen to on your on your iPod or what do you you know what's your favorite music and I've downloaded on my device and I listen to it so we can talk about the lyrics so yeah I I would say I use writing and and words um, as self-expression I use it a lot in my clinical practice Mm -hmm. what you're saying reminds me of two things and one is I once read a comment by an author, and I wish I could remember the name of the author, but it was something to the effect that writing is, it makes us human, makes us more human. And I've reflected on that over the years. What else, what other activity do we do that makes us human? I mean, it's really an interesting question. Well, I think anything that involves communication, even, I mean, I went to a seminar whole college seminar on communication and, you know, talking about whether to be communication, it has to have been intended to impart meaning to someone else or not. But all of that aside, I think the fact that we have language and we use language in unique ways and language condensed into a poem can speak to somebody in their own unique way because they overlay on it meaning for themselves is really an important and uniquely human fact. The other, the second comment is that in some way writing, at least for me, seems to be almost literally part of the pyramid of Maslow's self-actualization. There's just something that develops in me. I just always feel like I'm moving up the pyramid when I'm writing. Well, I think that there is a lot to be said for, you know, a construct like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which talks about, you know, before you can think about, you know, self-esteem and so forth, if you don't have your basic needs met on the scale of, am I going to eat tonight and am I safe from predators, say, you're not going to be as concerned with or able to produce at a level that's higher on the scale. When you get to self-actualization, however you define that, where you're being introspective and thinking of things on a grander scale, like the meaning of life and so forth, I think that I think those kinds of thoughts can be do develop when you're scared or when you're, you know, worried about your safety and some of those lower level needs, but people aren't able aren't always able to say write about it in the moment of, of you know, that level of emotionality. But I think what you're saying is is true that there are those who are more likely to stop and sit silently and, you know, ponder the wonder of a flower or think about a place in the universe. I don't know that that makes you more self-actualized or a better person in any way, but there are certainly those people who, who do that. Mm-hmm. I was reading not long ago some material that Joyce Carol Oates had written uh, uh, around the theme of writing, and uh, she had some comment, which, again, I don't remember really clearly, but I do remember, I think, that you are also 
a runner. <laughs> right. Uh -huh. Yeah. And so I was remembering that uh, there was something that Oates had said uh, about a runner and running through the land and the cityscapes of the fiction. It just led me to think about the yeah. activity of, let's say, running and how that might actually fit within mm -hmm. an individual's writing passion life. for writing. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, certainly, <laughs> I've thought about the environment when I'm running and even characters or, you know, thinking about something I'm seeing that might fit into a poem or something. I'm always writing something. That reminds me of, you know, when I can't sleep, when I'm in, steeped in a short story or a novel, when I can't sleep, I'm, I entertain myself by imagining what my characters might say or do in a scene. I can, like, hear them speak. Sometimes I even remember in the morning. <laughs> but when I'm driving in a car or traveling, I'm, I'm, some, I'm dictating in my phone, or if I'm sitting on a train, I'm writing down phrases, or, or I'm listening to others write or talk about writing, or, I'm res or listen to them reciting poetry. Those are some of my favorite things to do. I know before my first book that I wrote, which was nonfiction, it was a parenting book called Parenting with Purpose, Progressive Discipline from Birth to Four. Anyway, this was before cell phones and laptop computers. I'd heard somebody suggest buying a thousand note cards and jotting down thoughts whenever and wherever you had them, like in your car or by your bed, and when you couldn't do a chapter just then. So it, that gave me permission to think of that as part of an, the act of writing. And it is. It's not a substitute, but it's a start. So anytime I have a thought that, you know, might lead to a broader thought or fit into something I'm constructing, I try to write it down and capture it. The same happens to me when I'm writing, and I'm usually hung up on character development. Mm -hmm. So when I'm out in the public, I'll look for the way that somebody walked or holds their hands or, mm -hmm. you know, little things like that. Mm -hmm. so I have a, I actually have a spreadsheet that I keep with those little Descriptions. Mm -hmm. right, uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I've also pulled up pictures, scenes or pictures on the internet, uh, you know, of people that, random people that might be my character because it's easier, you know, if I can, if I can glom onto some image of what I'm writing about, that can be useful. You know, when you write a novel or a short story, you don't necessarily want to describe every detail of a person because the listener, the reader, has their own images that they're going to overlay on that character. But you kind of, you, the writer, me, the writer, um, certainly I want to kind of have an idea of what I'm describing. So, But yeah, people in my life, certainly, and having been a psychologist and meeting a lot of people in a lot of different settings, it certainly has informed my my writing. What projects you've completed over the years? Um, well, my writing's been pretty eclectic. Like I said, I started in third grade. But um, in my professional career, after many years of, you know, that type of writing poetry just for myself and sometimes journaling and so forth, and then years of writing articles, professional articles for refereed journals. I, um, I wrote two nonfiction parenting books. One, Keep Talking, A Mother-Daughter Guide to the Preteen Years, which was just to get moms and daughters talking about things that they might not otherwise think to do, like 
peer pressure and those sorts of things and an opportunity for the mother to share some of her experiences as well. The other was, I mentioned earlier, Parenting with Purpose, Progressive Discipline from Birth to Four, which talked about techniques that everybody hears about, time out and positive reinforcement and so forth, but um, basically the need, I think, for there to be some essential ingredients in the parenting before those things are going to be maximally effective, like commitment to the job of parenting, um, respect for the child's developmental level, being a trustworthy person the child can rely on, those sorts of things. So uh, those were published by Andrews McNeil. And um, then I wrote a few nonfiction self-help books, uh, mostly for preteen girls for the American Girl Company, the most popular still being the Feelings book, the Care and Keeping of Your Emotions, and a journal that goes with it, as well as um, some other quiz books for kind of self-discovery for that company. And then I've published poetry and short stories and some anthologies and so forth. And also, you know, like I said earlier, use the writing, a lot of aspects of writing in my clinical practice too. So currently, and kind of constantly, I write poetry, short stories, and I'm finishing, I guess I'd call it an interpersonal action novel. It's about an estranged ex-CIA operative and his daughter. They're estranged from each other. They're brought back together in the Congo in 1977, so then it was Zaire under Mobutu, during a what, what was thought to be a communist-backed invasion from Angola. So there you go. That's one of the most wonderful things about writing um, uh, writing about a time or a place that you have some knowledge of, but you know limited limited by the fact that you never lived there i I have had the the wonderful opportunity to meet a lot of people in the diaspora here who are from the Congo and meet people who were there in those years during that invasion even, and everywhere I go I seem to find somebody who has had some connection to that. So even if that novel never sees the light of day, I've been so enriched by just calling people up and saying, hey, I hear you might have had some experience with this time and this place. And it's just it's just a wonderful hobby. Likewise, I've had a lot novel in process and it involves uh, Northern Europe, primarily oh. Sweden. And I remember sharing some of it with a woman who is actually an expert in the area that my novel was circled around. Wow. And she knew the city that my novel was pretty much wrapped up in. So mm -hmm. she read some pages and she said, what? You've got flowers in these fields. You can't <laughs> find that flower in Sweden. Exactly. <laughs> You're so, going to be outed. Yeah, right. <laughs> so since then, I've uh, just randomly found contacts in Sweden. Great. That are, you know, just people that run a museum or whatever, just do a Google. Yeah. yeah. People that are willing to answer some questions that I can't find an answer to without talking to somebody. Exactly. I've had some wonderful um, Skype conversations with an individual in Belgium who lived in Congo, Zaire, at that time, and is just a wealth of information and very willing to talk about the experience and the politics and, you know, could tell me what flowers were blooming. <laughs> so that's great.
Linda, I have heard before that some authors find motivation in uh, a literary pilgrimage. I'm never entirely sure what they mean by that, but does, it, <laughs> does that question resonate with you in any respect? A literary pilgrimage. Um, well, in some ways, yes, I guess. But the, the literary part of the pilgrimage that I take um, has kind of been a function of maybe other reasons that I've chosen to travel to different countries, which I do as much as I possibly can. Um, everywhere I go, I look for poetry and writings that are touted as being most representative of the place or the authors whose voices, say, have survived and are significant to a lot of people. So, I don't know, for example... You know, I've walked Thoreau's Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, and that gave me an opportunity or kind of sparked my interest in going back and reading some of those works. And, um, and when I was in Ireland, I saw James Joyce's home, and Seamus Heaney's one of my favorite poets. He was from Northern Ireland, but he lived in Dublin for a lot of years, and he's a more recent poet, but... Um, How do you spell Seamus' last name? Um, it's H-E-A-N-E-Y. He's one of my favorite poets. He's, he's, it's lyrical poetry and kind of steeped in history and relationships. And just he, some of his, I can't even quote some of the fav famous works, but I do remember one being about looking out his window and seeing his father digging and thinking that was his life's work. And he's... He, Seamus, is writing with his pen in the house and likening that tool to a shovel and what, what his life work is. And it's just that sort of thing where he takes a, a, an object or a context and can kind of talk about relationships and, like I said, history. In China, in Chengdu, China, I saw Du Fu's thatched cottage. He was um, during the Tang Dynasty. So he wrote, so then I dug into his poetry and about the realities of war and people, you know, the rich rulers and people in primitive rural life suffering. And I think he, this struck me because I think he said, though a country be sundered, hills and rivers endure. And I think about that because I'm a hiker. I love to go out and experience, you know, grander scale of nature down to the little flowers along a trail. But, but I think about the turmoil that so many countries are in and, and it centers me to think about um, the path I'm on there and the fact that these mountains have been there for millions of years. But yeah, so I couldn't go to Greece without revisiting Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. And, um, Interestingly, he described, if he was just he and not several authors, described islands and places that they didn't ex think existed and then they later found them. So, I don't know, just so many stories and so many myths in various cultures. And going to the homelands of poets and writers just reminds me that, that voices have been raised and people have been touched and inspired and called to action through through their powerful messages or passages ever since there was language. So part of my literary pilgrimage has actually been, I've been here in Nebraska for three and a half decades, and my Nebraska writing friends and our retreats along the Platte River, just like sitting and sharing with my favorite poets like 
Marjorie Sizer and Twyla Hansen and Barbara Schmitz and people like Lucy Atkins and Suzanne Kim. That's enriched my life so much because I, th I just think that uh, their magical ways of appreciating everyday life and the wonders in nature, that, that pilgrimage has helped shape the person I am and the writer I am today. You wouldn't think so when I'm writing about a war in Zaire, but <laughs> when I'm writing poetry and some of my short stories, it certainly, it certainly follows. The fact that you'll visit these important places where authors lived and, and did their work, and then you come back rather with your heart touched by that experience. Absolutely. So I'm getting this kind of funny image in my mind that when you go through customs, you don't have a trinket. <laughs> I have a journal. <laughs> right. <laughs> and my laptop. <laughs> right. No, I do. I write whenever. I was recently in Argentina. I mean, I'm just so blessed to be able to do some of these trips, but I was hiking in the Torres del Paine, and we had a a long bus trip from there down to Tierra del Fuego, which is the very bottom city in South America, very southernmost tip. And I thought I was dreading that long bus ride, but I wrote and I wrote and I wrote about what it was like to be in the wind on the mountain and getting up in the middle of the night to see the constellations just amazing when all you're doing is getting up to take a break <laughs> in the middle of the night. It's just, it's just indescribable, even though I try to do that. Is that Patagonia? Yes. Oh, I highly recommend it. It's the just history beautiful. of the, yeah, the history of all the voyages that before the Panama Canal that had to wrap around oh. that coastline. Yeah. Darwin on the Beagle, you know, coming up that channel. I saw a map in one of the maritime museums down there of all the shipwrecks <laughs> that happened, you know, between, you know, and ships before, you know, before before there was GPS, you know, getting lost in the fjords and never getting out. Just amazing. But, yeah, it's, I think, I wish, I wish everybody could get to travel, especially those who take for granted their privilege. And I mean, I realize I'm privileged, amazingly privileged to get to go do that. But I wish everybody could go because it just reminds you how, how small you are, you know, and how vast the universe and so much to be preserved and appreciated. I've been but an then, armchair traveler forever. Uh, so I like to hear their stories and, and look at the maps of where they've been. Yeah. I, I also feel, I don't know, I ask myself sometimes um, what, uh, well, I don't know that I'd put this in there, but what is my um, obligation to having had the privilege of traveling? And I feel like one of those things is to write about it in some way, to, uh, to continue to appreciate it, at least for myself, for having gotten to do that. I think you're absolutely correct. For example, I don't know, in the next day or so, I'm actually going to try and find the Irish poet that you referred to. Oh, I'd be happy to send you some links. Um, mm -hmm. So it's that very important contribution you can make to the lives of both based on your good experiences in travel. I hope so. What's your next trip? Uh, well, I know yeah, the good virus. Question. <laughs> yeah, given the circumstances. 
I had hoped to go to Vietnam and Cambodia, Laos, that area in uh, January, but I'm thinking that that might have to wait. This is such a shame for, I mean, not just me, I mean, but for everyone. And, you know, when you're told to socially distance from people, it's like the opposite of what we kind of hope will happen. Me any episodes yet. But we made four trips to China and um, to teach when I was doing a nonprofit organization. And, um, and my husband and I both went. And each time after our work in Beijing, we tried to stay a couple weeks and fly to as many or travel by train to as many cities in China as we could get to. So I sincerely thank you. Sure. Now, this was interesting to cause me to think about all of this. Good, good. I hope I came up with a question or two that was worthwhile. Yeah. No, well, th thanks for thanks for including me. And oh, okay. I All right. I look forward to meeting you sometime.